Welcome to another edition of Traditional Bowhunter Magazine's Campfire Chat. While we're all stuck at home or in our home offices, TJ thought it'd be a great time to call his friend Rich Lopez over in Maryland. So they sat and chatted about refinishing vintage bows, hunting in Maryland, and lots of other things. So hope you'll sit back, relax, and enjoy the campfire. Welcome to another edition of Traditional Bullhunters Campfire Chats. And this, I'm your host, TJ Conrad, out here in the lovely high desert of Boise, Idaho. And today I have the pleasure of having Rich Lopez from Sykesville, Maryland with us on today. Rich, how you doing? Doing great, TJ. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to get back in touch with you. How's it going out there? Living the dream. 11 weeks now, doing uh, teleworking from my dining room. Shaved my head twice, grew a beard. You know, the typical stuff cavemen do. <laughs> well, I, I don't feel bad. I haven't had a haircut in about two or three months, and um, I'm I'm going ballistic. Uh, my my barber's not open yet, but Robin says, keep growing it. And I'm going, I don't know. I'm not used to this. It's been 40, 50 years since I had a ponytail <laughs> back in the old days. <laughs> yeah, at least it's not a man bun. Those things, I just want to cut them off. Uh, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> it's 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 nothing I'm I'm in, in tune with myself. <laughs> Rich, you know you've been a long time sub, uh, subscriber and supporter of TBM, and um, I'm, in fact, I was sitting here thinking the other day, and if I'm correct, I remember you wrote a piece way back in our third quarterly, I believe it was the spring of 1990, and it was the calcium connection. And in that piece, yep, I have that. Had the artwork on there. I still I actually was looking at it the other day. That's what so was I. I came by. I go, you know, I think this is where his article was. And uh, it was what wonderful piece. And your artwork really is fantastic. Do you still do that? You still drawing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. Every week. Fantastic. I know your work was, I thought it was outstanding. And uh, and I know you do all kinds of other interesting things. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the most important things I think that I've seen you do is that you are a remarkable uh, custom old bow refinisher. How did you get started in this? Well, it really it started back when I was a teenager. I mean, had all these bows, and I was into hunting at an early time. I couldn't afford you know new bows, uh, new bighorn back then. You know when Jeep when Fred had the company, you know I think it was like three hundred twenty five bucks. Oh, which was a lot of money back in you, you know, got it cheap i think my 70s. first one was 400 from him <laughs> yeah well maybe it was 400 425 i don't know but at the time i was like okay i can't yeah i can't do this with on paper wrap money and i was going to school and all that so you know yard sales i picked up bows here and there and they had little problems everybody was drill happy back in the 70s had to drill holes in them put sights and all sorts of accessories on so i was like man i, I don't want all this stuff on here so i Started messing around with it, learning. You know, I always knew how to work with wood. My uh, dad always tinkered in building hot rods and taught me how to paint cars at an early age. So I already had that skill down with the refinish part, as far as applying the clear coat. Um, wood fills, fiberglass fills. I knew body work. I just applied that knowledge to the bows as if they were a car. And hmm. uh, the rest is history. And then, you know, I started making some money, of course, doing it for other people. And couple bucks here, a couple bucks there. And then I got into bow collecting. Um, that crazy, you know, you, you need some money to buy bows. So that's what I was doing. I was refinishing bows and with the money I was buying bows. 
Well, your work is fantastic. I've seen several dozen bows that you've taken. Some of them just absolutely look like they belonged in a, a dump, <clears throat> and you've turned them back into better than original. And uh, do, can you still find all those decals? Yeah, actually. Thank you, by the way. Um, there's a guy. He's a close friend of mine. Um, actually, I was very close friends with his late father, Al Hartford Sr., and um, he and I started talking, and he was into refinishing and all this stuff, too, and we talked all the time. Never physically met the man, but we were like soulmates on the telephone for years. And then when he passed away, I had one of his personal bows. Uh, it was a 1959 Bear Kodiak, and – oh, actually, no, it wasn't. It was a 1960 Bear Kodiak. It was 60 inches, 60 pounds, 1960. So it had the nickname, the Triple Six. Triple Sixties. And – and that was refinished. Uh, I think Bodoc, the late Bodoc, had refinished it. And then I had done some work on it, got it in my possession. I owned it. I had done some work to it. Well, then when I found out Al had passed away, um, I reached out to his family and I wanted to give them the bow just so they can have it as a memento. And I mailed it to his widow. Next week, I'm getting a phone call to his youngest son, the junior, Al Hartford Jr. And this is, gosh, 15 years ago. Um, if that, you know, somewhere in that realm. And, you know, we became fast friends over the phone. Now we actually camp together and we're planning family gatherings together. He's in Michigan. Mm. And uh, it's just, it's just great full circle stuff, you know? Well, that's interesting. You, br you brought up Bodoc. A lot of people may not know him. Donnie, is that right? Mm -hmm. Don Ward. Yeah, Donnie Ward. I remember him when I lived over uh, in Vashon Island when uh, we used to get together over at Glen St. Charles Place a lot. And, uh, Donnie was a, he was in the, the traditional borders of Washington and he was a great guy. I hung around with him quite a bit. Now he was a refinisher of sorts, wasn't he? Yeah. He was the West coast guru and I'm the East coast guy. So <laughs> he and I became, he and I collected. So I knew Donnie for, since I was a teenager. And again, you know, back in the day, didn't have internet. So it was just a phone call. So I'd ring up three, $400 phone bills on my mother. She'd just go crazy. I'd be talking to Donnie until midnight Eastern time. You know, it's like nine o'clock there. And I'm like, you know, we just talked about bows for hours. And yeah, um, yeah it's just, uh, he was he was an incredible soul. Uh, I miss him to death. Uh, he was just a, an interesting, different, you know, there's only going to be ever one guy, Don Ward, and that's him. And, you know, he's now not with us, unfortunately. Well, he was a, he was a unique individual. He just passed away just a couple of years ago. How long has it been though? Yeah, it's probably been about three years. Yeah. So I remember he was always called here and talked to Robin and always... You know, I always call and talk about the magazine. He was a great, uh, great customer, just a good friend. And uh, the kind of yeah, funny story about Donnie, when I first met him at Denton Hill, um, you know, we hung out together. The first thing I noticed is his earlobes were blue. And I looked, he was wearing copper hoop earrings. <laughs> and the copper was turning his skin blue. I, just thought, I thought that was hilarious. I got my picture taken with him. And you know, I said, we got to do this, man. He's yeah. just the coolest dude. He's yeah. just cool. He was an old school hippie and tried to jump into the, you know, into the new era. I don't think he ever fit in. He was still old school all the time. Yeah, Heck it's all good. Guy. Let's talk some more about your bows, though. I remember uh, you've had some really, you've had some dogs. And and tell me, what was the worst project someone ever sent you to refinish? What was the hardest bow or what was most unique about that well, one job that sticks out? There's going to be bows that are blown apart and people want to put back together okay and then there's going to be bows that people doctored up thinking they were doing a, the bow a favor okay and then oh man i can't do it you know i've made this mess can you fix this okay 
We'll start with that. I had a guy, Ed Albright. He's a champion target archer from the 60s and the early 70s. He gave his brother one of his like 1966 Ben Pearson target bows. They had shot tournaments and NFAA tournaments with. And um, so his brother decided, I need some more weight out of this thing. So what he did is he took house paint, thick, thick latex house paint. Wow. And painted the limbs like almost as an 18th of an inch, a 16th of an inch thicker with this house paint, thinking it, it'd give him extra weight. Well, the house paint he used, he didn't care about color. It was like a, a mauve color, like an off pink, mm-hmm. like a salmon color. These limbs were white. So after a while, he says, oh, I don't, I'm going to try and remove this stuff. So he tried removing the latex paint. Well, the latex paint somehow super hardened and adhered itself to the finish of the, the bow, which was at that time varnish. Hmm. Well, he started chipping away, chipping away. Well, now fiberglass is coming off too. Wow. That's not good. <laughs> so he sends it, he gives it back to his brother. Hey man, I'm sorry. His brother, who's a very um, cantankerous fella, <laughs> um, located me, grabbed me, begged me to re- fix the bow, get it back. Man, it took me months and months to get this stuff off. I had to use sandpaper, just diligently, carefully sand and then wet sand until I got down to the fiberglass. And then I had to backfill some of the splintered fiberglass with fiberglass resin, like you would fix on a dune buggy or a Corvette right. out of a AutoZone. Yeah, I used that. And then, you know, of course, there's discoloration now. So I had to mask everything off, sand everything smooth, and then I had to actually take my fender gun, so I did body work. So it's just a, you know, it's a touch-up gun. And mm-hmm. resprayed the white, basically gel coat the limbs with paint, white paint, to get it to look normal again. And then I got the decals, and then I went to the riser and finished it all up. And you can't, the thing looks like it just came out of the box in 1966. That's amazing. That's quite a talent. It's, it's, it's madness is what it is. Well, um, how did you, how did you, <laughs> the ever, other, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you said there was another bow? Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a guy who had a Stotler. Uh, medalist, um, not, uh, late nineties. Well, somehow he must've, I he didn't tighten down the limb bolts on the takedown section and he went to draw it back. And when he released the whole limb, just yanked the, the socket, the threaded insert. And basically the bed of the riser, it was had my, um, fiberglass in there just for reinforcement that blew out and ripped out chunks of wood Ouch. from that section. Yeah. He sends it to me. He's like, Hey, fix this for me. Can you? I was like, all right. Why? He says, well, I'm going to Africa in six months and I want to kill the big five with it. This thing is 90 pounds. I don't even pull 48 now, <laughs> you know? So I'm like, Oh, what am I going to do with this thing? Well, I was younger then. So, you know, everything was cool. Looked at the thing. I studied it for a while. I said, all right, I'm going to have to recreate the limb bed first, you know, the, on the riser. So I, I backfilled all the ripped out wood with epoxy two part, like, 10 ton epoxy smoothed all that out. And then I created the new bed out of micarta or um, phenolic. Right. And laid that in there. And I did that to the other side too. So they matched, there would be the same, it wouldn't affect the tiller. Same. You know, right. Thickness. So it's the same thickness. And, mm-hmm. and then I um, repinned it through the side in case there was any internal crackage. Yeah. Put a metal pin through the bottom half two of them mm. 
sealed everything up, retouched up any hole marks with some acrylic paint and resprayed the handle. And then um, the limb itself had some issues. I had to repair that and use my cart on that and backfill it with epoxy. Bolted it all together, drew it back, shot 10 arrows out of it, shipped it to the guy. Four weeks later, calls me back, says, hey, what's your email address? I gave me, sends me all the pictures, all the big five he took with it. Really? That's an impressive story. Yep. Yeah, and then he, you know, he he retired the bow because I told him to. I said, "You're lucky you're still alive. <laughs> you know, hang the bow up. If you can afford to go to Africa, you can afford to buy a new bow." So. <laughs> well, that, yeah, especially to, to go after the big five, it takes a tremendous amount of money. So I've dreamt of going to Africa. It'll never happen. But oh, you never been? Still dream. No. Well, you know, always wanted to. I I I've been there. I don't. Know, I spent eight, 10 summers in Africa over the, back in the nineties. And, and, you know, when it was back then, it was affordable. And I, you did a lot of speaking around the country after that, a lot of times. And, um, you know, and I did, I've, I've, I spent a lot of time in uh, Zimbabwe and also in, uh, South Africa, not so much. I, it's not, I didn't care for hunting South Africa that much. It's too, too small areas and too tame, you know, go to Zimbabwe and, worked in a million acre preserve and you can get killed there. There's elephants, lions and everything, crocodiles, two rivers. It was gorgeous. And then uh, spent some time in two places up in Namibia. And back then it was affordable. So I was promoting this uh, for these farms and people that I worked for and promoting their, 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 their hunts. And it was really affordable. And then just everything went sour. And after 9-11, I haven't been back. It's just been... Have, did you hunt there during the times when there was like civil unrest, political stuff? Um, well, no. Craziness in the South it, it, Africa? What, no, a lot of that stuff happened way earlier. You're talking about in the, back in the 70s. And uh, I mean, okay. there's always been political issues. I mean, I remember going into uh, into Johannesburg and I forgot the guy's name, but we had a safe house there and he would come pick us up in a, in a little metro van and... Um, and he was always carrying weapons because he's he had been shot at. And in fact, uh, he, he he was in gunfights a couple times. People trying to steal the the you know the the combi as everybody called it. And you go to this place in a white neighborhood, and everything was gated up. But I mean, it's it was it was still it, that was probably the worst part. Then in Harare, uh, we had a lot of issues with you fly in the airport and there's beggars everywhere and they're grabbing your stuff and they're trying to steal your bags out of your hands and things like that. It was, it was a little awkward. The safest place was actually in Namibia, except for when I landed in Vinhook that one time, the first time I landed there in Namibia from, I was actually, I was, I had spent uh, two weeks in South Africa. And then um, I think maybe it was, I think it was two weeks or two weeks in Namibia. And I actually flew to Johannesburg, jumped another jet and flew over to Vinhook, Namibia. And I got there, and uh, my luggage was gone. And next thing I know, it was in Amsterdam. And uh, don't ask me how that happened. Five days later, my luggage showed up. Uh, these guys drove it up. And uh, so, you know, but nothing was touched. And I was, I was pretty lucky. But for the most part, no, it wasn't that bad. But um, I did a lot of work with a lot of farms and ranchers that they had gone through the Angola War back then. And uh, when it was still Rhodesia. And, uh, and before Mugabe took over and destroyed the country and, uh, changed it to Zimbabwe, the people were lovely, but, and, but the government was so corrupt, but, yeah. um, yeah, I'm just, it, it was affordable. And anymore, Don went back, Don Thomas went back last summer and he wanted me to go. And I said, Don, I really, you know, I've spent enough time in Africa when it was good. I know what it was and it's not the same mm. and it's not affordable. And he came back, he said, you're right. It's too expensive. 
And so it's changed a lot. You should have went when you had the t chance. Well, I was close to going at one time in the late 80s with Gene and Barry Wenzel. They mm -hmm. were putting together a group of guys through the PBS to do this Africa hunt. Right. And it got it got canceled after everything. was. We were like about two weeks away from it. And everything got canceled because there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on in South Africa with the army and the rebels. And I was like, all right, man, that's the shit can that, that project. So yeah, you, well, you know, that close. Africa is always going to be Africa. It's going to resort back. It's just, uh, and you know, one of my contributors, uh, Dennis Kamster is living in South Africa right now. Um, oh yeah. But he said that it's, it's getting to a point where they're looking at moving to, you know, all kinds of places. And one of the places was Croatia and another Portugal. And we've been looking at other places overseas to, to retire in. And, and, you know, he's the same way. He says, I don't want to come back to the States. He said, but it's getting a little bit dangerous in South Africa. And he retired as a PH and they're living in a okay. very nice oceanfront community, which is gated. So it's rather safe. And I believe he's on the Indian ocean. I could be wrong. Could be the, the Atlantic side. Yeah. Yeah. You know, who's living the dream? Jay Campbell. <laughs> yeah, that dude's got a killer place, man. I love yeah, it. well, you know, it's it's small, it's affordable for them, but um, I I think they yeah, I would get a little restless living on a seven mile island. I, I've lived on island before, but I could always get off by ferry and yeah, but yeah, but it's a nice, a beautiful place. It is, you yeah. know, it's always tempting. I love seeing his pictures. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. know. I just um, I don't like being landlocked like that <laughs> by the ocean. Well, <clears throat> yeah, you know what? I think that uh, every place is good. Yeah, you, know, you know, you can be happy in heaven and miserable in hell or the other way around, your choice. You can, right. So every place is, you know, every place has something nice. But if you have wandering Jones, like I do, and a lot of people, it's after so many years, it's like, okay, I'm bored. I'm ready to see something new. And I think that's what with, you know, with Jay and, and Karen, you know, they did the boat thing and they ended up down there and found a place and sold the boat and built the house and, and they're living their dream and they're having fun. And, and it, you know, it's, it is, it, they're living their dream. It's not for everybody, but for them, it's perfect. And it is admirable. Yeah. Very beautiful Yeah, my place. wife and I, Lisa, Lisa and I, are, we're getting ready to make a move in the next year. Where are you to, going? To do something. Go down. We're, gonna go, we're going to Florida. That's where all the kids and the grandkids are. Mm -hmm. And they're so much fun to hang out with. Because my kids are adults now. So, you know, it's right. fun to hang out with your adult children. And, you know, because it's, you, know, you, you make, it's just great. It's just weird. You know, just hanging out with my four boys, you know. So, you're going to retire they take, then? They take me to heavy metal concerts and get us kicked out. They start <laughs> fights and stuff. So, yeah. I got kicked out of Disney, believe it or not. My my boys took me to some heavy metal show at the Hard Rock Cafe, an old heavy metal band that I liked. So we're there 20 minutes. Okay. My youngest boy was not of age. Oh. So they're off doing whatever in that place, you know, and I'm just sitting there waiting for the show. All of a sudden, I hear my name over the intercom. Mr. Lopez, can you please come to the front office? Mr. Lopez? Oh, oh, crap. So I go up there. Sure as heck. It's not my boys. It's one of their buddies. Oh, no. Started a fight with some guy, and it's a big melee. So, of course, they're kicked out because of association, and I'm kicked out because I'm in charge of them. How old were so they? I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. All, the, all of them were 21 except my youngest. He was 18. Jeez. <laughs> So and you want to move next to them? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, you know, I'm going to get this kid back for starting this fight. So we take them all to the, I take them all to Hooters. So we must get this, we get this like 200 wing platter. So, and I had already told the boys what, what I was going to do here. So <laughs> um, at the end of it all, everyone got up at separate times to go use the bathroom. And then they were going out to the parking lot. 
So I'm sitting there with the kid. I said, I'll be right back. I got to go use the men's room. So I use the men's room and then I duck outside. So we're all standing out there looking through the window and here comes the waiter handing him the bill. Oh, and he looks up and we look at him and just gave him thumbs up. But it wasn't the thumb, if you know what I mean. <laughs> That's mean. That's <laughs> he paid mean. the bill. He paid the bill. He paid the bill. And to this day, you know, still looks at me and he smiles. He said, that was funny. You thought that was funny, wasn't it? I said, yeah, it was. You know, now he's in his 30s. So, <laughs> Well, I take it uh, you're still hunting then. Oh, yeah. But I don't Well, I'm going to try and hook up with Don Davis down there. Good choice. PBS member? Yeah, Don's a great guy. Yeah. Great guy. And he's got yeah. some fantastic snook that. fishing going on down there. Right. And I mean, the fishing, he, he, that's, that's something I never got to do a lot. Cause I, I, I stink at it. Actually, if I got into fishing, like I got into bow hunting, forget about it. I, it my wife would never see me. <laughs> um, but that's what I want to get into. My son's got a real nice boat, my middle son. Um, all my boys love the water. My daughter, she lives in Northern, um, she's a horse girl. So she lives up in the Northern section of Florida and she's got a little farm with some horses and stuff. So are you looking at Melbourne? Nah, we're going to probably stay center of the state um, within 45 minutes of each kid. Okay. That's, you know, summers are brutal. No, I know. They're here. They're brutal here in Maryland. You I got mean, high July humidity and August, too? it's nothing, you know, 100 with 90% humidity. You know, us fat guys don't like that stuff. <laughs> hey, I lived in the tropics for a long time. I was born in Hawaii and lived, uh, spent five years in the Philippines. And I remember... It was a long time till I got used to it. And then when I came back to the States, it was like, is there really weather like this? <laughs> but yeah, I, the humidity, right. it, it, even our place in Costa Rica is like that. It's just 90-90 and it's all year long. It gets old unless you live there. You adapt after a while, but it takes it takes several months to get yeah. used to it. My wife is already on board with, you know, hey, I told her, I said, October 30th, the, the last week of October through gun season, Thanksgiving week. I'm going to be living in Maryland because I've got a farm here and I got a place to stay. Good deal. And I'm just going to hunt the entire time. And uh, I've got a lease. I got two leases on the Eastern shore of Maryland that I've had them for 20 years. So they'll never go away. So I'll always have opportunity in my, my favorite places to hunt. Well, how did you get into bow hunting to, to begin with? <laughs> completely, completely by default. It was just strange. Um, nobody in my family ever really hunted. My dad tried it once. Uh, shot a deer realized he couldn't he didn't like it he just couldn't do it he just did it out of peer pressure you know working in you know in the city in new york and new jersey and you, know, you get the, your your bosses hey let's do this hunting trip stuff you know corporate type crap so anyway i'm watching tv at my grandmother's house on a sunday afternoon i think i'm like 11 or 12 and you're flipping through the channels and you know my, all the, every sunday we went to my grandmother's and it was a big to do all the guys we're on the deck drinking and talking and the women are in the kitchen cooking and gabbing away. And I'm, I'm just sitting there by myself in the living room with the, with the dog. And I'm just, here's this, I see this polar bear on TV and this guy stalking this polar bear. And it's pure white. It's just, I said, man, that is weird. And then I see, I said, holy crap, that's a bow and arrow he's got. It's Fred Bear. And it was the uh, Wide World of Sports, American Sportsman, I believe it was called. Hmm. Yes. And yeah, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know it was Fred Bear, but wasn't I just that Kurt Gowdy or something? Kurt Gowdy, exactly. Yeah, he and was the And then all of a sudden, here's a guy's name, Fred Bear. What a great name! A guy named Fred Bear hunting a bear, a polar bear, <laughs> with a with a stick and a string. I thought that was amazing. I had to run in the kitchen and grab my mother. I said, "Mom, this is cool. I want to do this." So, my uncle, who lived at the house, 
there that at my grandmother's house, up in his bedroom, he had a bow and arrow set up on a rack. I'd always seen it and never put two and two together until I saw this TV show. Holy crap. I could, I could shoot a bear with this. So I told him, I said, I would like to have this bow. Will you buy me one? And he says, you can have this the day you can pull it back. So, I mean, I went into an immediate physical fitness thing, you know, and then probably took about six months, but when he, he strung it up, it was a 40 pound uh, Ben Pearson Loxley semi recurve. I still have it downstairs in my collection. Uh, killed my first deer with it actually. And, um, it was 60, 60 inches long, 40 pounds. And I, I pulled it back. I held it for like two seconds. Of course, and my arm was quivering and he says, all right, you can have it. So we packed everything up and I took it home to my mom's house and put everything up there in the wall and looked at it. And I shot it every day. And then, you know, my sister started dating this guy. He just got home from Vietnam and he shows up at the house to finally meet my parents. They had been on a few dates. And he's driving this 1969 Chevy Blazer. He's probably got a, a 10-inch lift kit, monster mutter, Mickey Thompson tires on. You could hear this thing a mile away. He's got headers on it, you know, the whole night. And I'm like, all right, this is cool. <laughs> you know, I'm high-fiving my sister. Like, this is awesome. You got a cool guy here. So he comes in, you know, sitting around the table. We're having dinner. Everybody's talking. All this, and I'm looking at this guy. And like, I can tell I love this guy immediately. And um, they're dating for a couple months. I finally, you know, he, he brings up the subject he's going hunting this weekend he won't be around and like what are you doing hunting just bow and arrow I'm going to hunt deer he's like really it's like by then i'm about 14 um i said will you take me sometime he goes well if you take your hunter safety course i'll take you to the courses and you get your card and i'll take you and sure as heck he took me three weekends with my mother and we sat there and i passed the course luciano sports shop in uh upper saddle river new jersey i'll never forget it um, I have all that. I have everything. All my, I have every hunting license I ever had in my life, all in giant frames hanging up in my, my shop. And, um, yeah, he took me hunting and remember sitting there, you know, I'd never saw a deer until he pointed things out. He, he taught me how to read sign and look at game trails, things like that. Um, I actually shot my first deer sitting at the base of a tree, smoking a cigarette, listening to a New York Mets game on a transistor radio with an earpiece. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm looking over and here comes this spike. It's just walking up to me, but it's not looking at me. It's just want, walking up the trail. It was just the logging road. So I'm like, holy crap. So I, I put the cigarette down, pull the thing out of my ear. I get my bow ready. I'm just sitting there and I've got door flight number six, fiberglass arrows tipped with a bare razor head on that semi recurve. Probably way too heavy of a shaft for the bow at the time, but who the heck was, you know, looking at shaft sizes back then, right. you know, like they do today with the science of it. And I just, I didn't, I mean, totally, Offhand shot, city. I was in a Indian seated Indian position. I just lifted the bow sideways and I pulled it back. And as soon as it, my fingertip hit my cheek, off it went, and I hit the sucker right in the neck. <laughs> and just it took off. And then just like I watched it, it collapsed. I was like, what the heck? I thought there's blood everywhere. Like Freddie, I hit the jugular. That's what happened. I mean, this thing expired within a matter of seconds. I was like, now what do I do? <laughs> I had never seen a video. They didn't have videos back then. I didn't know how to go to deer. I knew you had to take the insides out. So I'm just sitting there and waiting for my brother. It's dark now. Got a flashlight and you know, I meet him up on the log and I said, Hey, I got a deer. He says, All right, well, come on. Comes over there. He says, Pull out your knife. I said, Okay. He goes, You're good, this deer. I'm not doing it. And uh so he showed me and he went real slow. You know, he held the flashlight. It was a mess, of course. You know, I just I was covered in half the insides. By the time I was done, but I got it done, and the rest is history. <laughs> I 
That's great. You still stay in touch with this gentleman? Oh, yeah, every week. Really? Yeah. Him yeah. and my sister have been married since 1970. Oh, he did marry seven. her. Yeah, oh, yeah. He's great. They never had kids together. She had a kid from a prior marriage, and um, she's 10 years older than me. So now, how old are you now, Rich? I'm 60. Going to be 60 in August. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I hope this talk be... You know, talking to you on the phone when I'm 80. <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, me too. You know, at least the longevity does uh, run in my in my genes. I, my uncle, my he, my uncle lived to be 91, and my mother lived to be 91. My dad was 85. Of course, he was in bad shape, and he used to brag about never exercising a day in his life. So, you know, I, hey, I got that going for me, right? <laughs> so yeah, but, yeah, I got it. I got I got longevity on my grandmother. She lived to ninety six. There you go. But we had a lot. We have a lot of cancer in our family and heart problems, which, I mean, I'm sure that's gonna. I don't know. I've been, I haven't been sick since my son was born in ninety. My youngest boy, he was born in ninety. I have not been. I have not had the flu or anything since then. I've broken a lot of bones and stuff just being reckless and and being stupid. But ne- you know, the worst I ever get is a sinus infection once every couple of years. Knock on wood, you know, no COVID either. Yeah. So, I don't uh, know. My, my wife says I have the I have the uh, wherewithal and uh, what do they call that? The immune system of an an, an elephant. She, I don't even get hangovers. Boy, you haven't had any scotch yet, today, have you? No, that's going to happen in about an hour. <laughs> it's the last yeah, time. It's we Friday talked. night, man, and they just opened up here in Maryland. So, good. You know, I'm going to my local pub, which I haven't been at since March 13th. So, well, good. My for wife's you. working until 10 o'clock, so I'm just going to go hang with the guys. Well, you know, there's one thing about getting old is that it it has it's a blessing in one aspect because you know there's a lot of a lot of people don't live long enough to experience life fully and you know it's everything it's uh, I had to watch both my parents who had my wife and I were caregivers for my parents for many many years and then and you know we had to we had to be there when they both passed away and uh, so were my kids and my grandkids at the time they were very very young and but you know it's interesting to see how life is and and so many people are cut short. So, you know, they don't have an, yeah, they don't have the opportunity to really grow old and to be, get, you know, understand the wisdom that you come, or hopefully sometimes I would kind of question that, but, you know, getting old, it's a, it's kind of a blessing uh, and everyone kind of worries about it. I just take it in stride. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it does wear on me a little bit as eyesight starts to go out, you know, knees are acting up, maybe got a shoulder acting up after mistreating right. it for the last 63 years. Um, but Hey, it's a good thing. We're on the right side of dirt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm a type two diabetic, but that's, that's self-inflicted and it, but it is hereditary on my, my grandmother's side, my father's side of the family. So it's the kiss of death. My dad had it. I got it. So all I got to do is just some exercise and, you know, keep my carbs down and I'll be all right. And your father, uh, he just passed away here, uh, not too long ago. Yep. And, uh, yeah, he passed away last fall. Yeah, um, I know it was not too last you, last week of October. And you were yep. too, you were, you were yeah, very close. he had struggled with. Yeah, we were tight as hell. Um, he he lived with me the last three years of his life. Um, he got into something with his house. He couldn't afford the house anymore. It was in New Jersey. New Jersey um, property taxes run around twenty twenty five thousand a year. Oh, jeez. And on a fixed income with with his retirement and Good Social boy. Security. He couldn't even make he couldn't even make one payment, you know, if he was doing an installments. So I said, Pop, we got to sell this house. We got to short sell it. And because uh, he took one of those reverse mortgages. Mm-hmm. Uh, elderly people, by the way, it's a scam. Don't do yeah. it. And whoever's listening, um, <laughs> everybody. I'm serious. It's the biggest scam in the world. Right? That's when I see Tom Selleck advertising this crap. 
Was uh, it Tom? Uh, Tom's doing that? Yeah. I remember before it yeah, was uh, Roger it, Moore. <laughs> yeah, it's, there anybody and anybody they can get. I guess, you know, I don't mm. know. I just don't get it. Yeah. But uh, at any rate, so I got him to move in with me. He he kind of resisted at first, but, you know, things went down too fast for him to catch up to it. And he, so he asked me, uh, can I come live with you? I said, yeah, but under one condition. I've got power of attorney and it's my house, my rules. He said, fine. So got him moved in here, sold all his cars. He was big into Jaguars. That's what he liked to fix on, uh, restore and all that. And uh, we sold all his cars. He, he was beyond turning wrenches anymore because with his diabetes, right? he, he lost uh, vision in one eye and he started from medication, got, got the trembles in the hands. So he really couldn't you know, function well with tools. And so I got him in the house and, you know, he's here for a while. You know, he'd work on my car. I had him paint in the garage. He had some, uh, he had some issues with walking. He had injured himself back in the seventies. So he's using a walker and a cane. And it, 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 let me tell you, it took like a week for him to go a hundred yards. So, uh, but he still made do with it. It was crazy. I mean, I had him out working in the garden. He'd work on my deck in the afternoons. It was, it was great. You know, so we, then we'd, I'd get home and he and I would have our, we always drank um, rusty nails and scotch and drambouille for those who want to know the recipe, half and half. <laughs> and uh, we have one before dinner. My wife would cook dinner. We'd all have family dinner together, which was great because I, I remember that from when I was a kid and I really enjoyed those times. Yep. And then um, one day he gets up from, from the kitchen table, goes into the bathroom, and I hear this crash. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And uh, he fell down. He lost his... his uh, his footing, he couldn't, he couldn't hold himself up and, uh, he was wedged against the door and I couldn't get a, get the door open. I couldn't, I didn't want to, so I just called paramedics. So they finally got into the, the bathroom. They opened up the other window on the opposite side and crawled through. I couldn't get through, but they figured a way to do it. And they got him out and, uh, he refused treatment at the time, but I said, no, we're going to go to the hospital just to make sure. Went to the hospital. It turns out he had a mini stroke. Hmm. And then, uh, so he came back home. Everything was cool. Took care of him for a couple of weeks. I come home from work one day. I find him on the deck, passed out. And it's 90 degrees, and he's in broad sunlight. I'm sitting, he's all sunburnt. I said, I get him up. I, I put cold towels on his neck and on his head. And, and he, you know, I got, got him too, got him hydrated. I, put, I pulled the sunshade out over the deck so cool, get get him into some shade. I carried him. I mean, he only weighed 140, 40, 45 pounds. So I just carried him in the house and put him in the bed. And then, uh, he laid there, and I said, you know, get this thing checked out. So I took him to the doctor. So they started giving him an exam, up and down, all over, neurology, everything. They found a sore on his ankle. And he, that sore, he, I didn't know it, but it had been there for several months that he'd been trying to treat himself. Well, all of a sudden, this sore went ballistic. Within a week's time, it became a hole in his ankle, and then it started getting into his foot. So... We took him to the hospital and then he had another couple series of issues, um, mini strokes again. He started getting dementia. Um, and then that sore got to the point where it was gangrenous. So yeah. they said his foot's got to come off. I'm like, yeah. well, he doesn't do anything except sit in bed with his knees up, you know, against himself. And they said, well, if he does that, what's going to happen is it's, we're going to have to take the leg above the knee then. So that way it's staying straight down, so to speak, not up mm -hmm. right? because you know, moisture and everything could cause infections and whatnot. 
And it's a, it's a lead that didn't really work all that well anyway, because it's the one that was, had the nerve damage in it from, from years ago when he had an accident. And uh, so we took the leg and then that didn't work out too well. You know, he had to go to a rehab center when he was in a rehab. He had a couple other issues there, episodes, um, urinary tract infections, falling out of bed, other things. And then finally I, we had him reevaluated and doctors recommended that he become a permanent resident. So hmm. he became a permanent resident of the nursing home. And that lasted about two and a half years until his passing. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. Uh, uh, it, it happens to all, a lot, a lot of seniors, more than, you, than you'd like to know. But um, he was in a better place, let me tell you that. Because yeah. you know, one minute I'd walk in there, I didn't know who I was talking to. The next minute, he'd be perfect. And I would take him out. You know, anytime I, his mind, mind was sharp, I'd get him dressed and I'd carry him and put him in the truck, take him for breakfast, wheel him in and out, take him for a long ride in the country. He's Puerto Rican, so I have this uh, pod, uh, Spotify. Mm-hmm. So I collected all this this Puerto Rican and Cuban music, all the salsa mm-hmm. music from his time, and I labeled the the um, the album in Spotify called it Spick and Span. <laughs> and uh, I said, "Hey, you want to listen to oh, some Spick and Span?" He goes, "Let's go, baby!" And, you know, and he's sitting in the truck, man. We're tra- we're tooling down the country roads, and he he's doing salsa dances, sitting in the passenger seat, listening to this music. It was awesome. Yeah, you know, I miss it's yeah, yeah. I I can tell, and uh, you know that's a wonderful relationship you had. It's uh, hard to find. Let's oh, change yeah. gears a little bit, though. Um, what are you hunting now, and, and you have anything on your bucket list? Yeah, my bucket list: moose. That's not going to happen probably for a while. Those are not cheap trips. Um, I'll start putting. I got a draws. buddy of mine who's a a bowyer in Washington State, Wade Marsh. You've probably seen him on, on yeah, Facebook. Yeah, I know Wade. Yeah, he and I are very, very tight. And um, he actually worked for my old friend, Randy Donnell, formerly of Saxon Archery, untimely oh, passing as well. Randy. Yeah, funny story about Randy. I, he came to my house one time, so I took him to Denton Hill. He and I got a little tuned up at the bar. We come back to the house. He's in. The, he's in, he's sleeping in the futon in the spare bedroom. All of a sudden, he hears this, this noise. I'm like, what the hell's going on? And I, my wife gets up to investigate, and I hear her say, oh, my God, it's Randy walking around, sleepwalking naked. <laughs> and I, I, the next day, I put him back to bed. I said, do you sleepwalk? He goes, oh, yeah, that, I forgot to tell you about that. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. My wife kicked us out of the house at like 4 in the morning. She's get out of here. You know, <laughs> coming back anytime soon. Uh, but uh, at any rate, yeah, Wade, um, Wade wants me to come out and hunt elk with him. And I Good, good. So I'm going to try that. Yeah, he's up in northern Idaho, and um, I have I got a friend coming, uh, my friend native Nick Matthews from uh, Indiana, him and his wife are coming out this year, and it was, my friends from France wanted to come out, but what, you know, with all this uh, COVID BS going on, uh, everything's kind of changed. International travel, you know, even though it's open up now, it's we it's kind of hard to schedule something like that, so I think that Nick's going to come out, there's some over-counter elk tags out here, and and um, that's pretty much all I have left. Probably that and antelope, um, since I didn't draw anything. That's all. Probably what my my summer is going to be. My fall will be just chasing uh, elk, deer, and antelope. Yeah, I'm here. I got I got a couple of well, I got a couple of things going on. My oldest boy's getting remarried. Um, of course, during the rut, all the boys got married during the rut, and I don't know why they want to keep doing this to me, but. Um, <laughs> I said, all right, well, the first week of November, my middle boy is going to come here to hunt with me on my lease. 
And then as soon as we leave here, we're both, we're all flying after that week of hunting to Florida for the wedding and then coming back. And then I'm going to hopefully just get in some more hunting around here with my best friend. And, um, who's also a traditional archer. Um, and, uh, just, that's it, you know, just chasing the whitetails. I'm after this one particular 10 pointer. He's 160 plus. And my son had two encounters with him last year. And I had one where I got busted. He put, <laughs> I, I was up in my stand, ready to draw down on him. He came in at like right at first light. And I saw him in my peripheral vision. I just stayed still. He, I needed him to walk past me. And he just kept going because there's a scrape line just coming out right 10, 15 yards in front of me. I just need him to come past me. I see him in my peripheral. He's standing there. And I could see his head moving and his ears twitching. And I was like, oh, this guy's scanning the area. All right. Well, wind's in my favor. Not a big deal. I need him to get behind, start walking. He's going to walk behind this big oak. At that point, I'm going to stand up and get ready. Sure as heck. His head's behind the tree of the oak. I get up and I start to draw. As soon as I do, I, I'm halfway through it. He sticks his head around the tree and looks straight up at me. <laughs> oh, it's like, you son of, you know. Well, that's, <laughs> they don't get big by being stupid. You know what I'm saying? Well, you've shot some pretty so, big whitetails in the years over the over the last few years. It took some time and effort. <laughs> and I got to thank the Wenzels because ever since meeting the Wenzels when I was a teenager and we've kept in touch, I've learned so much from them. And I attribute mm -hmm. 90% of my knowledge to those two, two crazy suckers. And um, well, they are definitely the whitetail wizards. That's for sure. I mean, it's a, it's a science project. And, you know, I talk to other hunters about this stuff and I bring stuff up and I learn from other people. I talk, I ask questions. Obviously I like to talk. So, um, <laughs> I'm an information hound. I mean, you should see my library. It's insane. That's everything and anything about whitetails. To me, they're just the, the, the most elusive game animal to kill a mature doe is next to almost impossible unless you know what you're doing. Yeah. No, you have shot some nice ones. That's for damn sure. Funny story. I had last day of the season last year. It's, I mean, I'm five minutes away from dark, pitch black outside. I'd been, at, I, I saw the 160 come across the field with does in tow. So he goes into the other side of the field. So I have a tree stand right on the edge there. I hop in that tree last, you know, on the afternoon side of things. My buddy's across the field from me. So he can see me through binoculars, but he's a good five, 600 yards away. Last light, one, two, five, 30 does come pouring out right, right next to my tree stand. And they're all standing out in the field feeding, but they're all like mediocre size, you know, like yeah, two-year-olds, three-years-old, a couple of little skippers. I'm thinking that this buck is still with them and is going to eventually come out, but he's probably going to come out right at last light. Last light comes, here comes this doe. TJ, this thing had to be 160 pounds. It was like a tank. Wow. She walks right out and stands broadside at 10, 12 yards. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this deer. And I look at, I get, my, my phone goes off. I had one of those computer watches on. It's my wife telling me that the Packer game starts in an hour. <laughs> and we're big Green Bay Packer fans. I let that doe go so I can go home and watch the playoffs. And they lost. I was upset. <laughs> Uh, you should have let the air out of her. <laughs> yeah, my my buddy, he, we still talk about that. Like, we're going to the range tomorrow. And he says, every time we get together, he goes, he goes, I still can't believe you didn't shoot that dove. He goes, you shoot everything. <laughs> you know, I said, dude, I guess maybe as we get older, choices, I don't know. 
Well, you know, I've shot a lot of white-tailed does in my life, and I used to go to Montana and they were over the counters, and I remember coming home with four of them and a buck one trip with Asbel and a, I think Dale Karch was on that trip, may not have been. We were over in eastern, um, eastern uh, up in the Milk River, which is an area where the oh, Wenzels yeah. used to hunt. Right on the border of oh, yeah. North Dakota, something like that. Well, you know, it's funny about the Milk River. You, you go back and watch the real tree videos with uh, Bill Jordan. Milk River, Milk River, Milk River. Yep. Like it was the first, like they discovered this new land. And we've already knew about this for 25 years prior. Yeah. Well, you know. Crazy. I've shot a lot of deer. And I've shot, I've shot all five species in North America. Except for there are 17 subspecies of whitetails. And uh, I've only gotten two or three of those. But that's okay. But you know what? Out of all of them, I think that it's pretty tough to beat a corn-fed whitetail doe on the table. Um, and I love oh, mule deer. Um, black tails are all good, but there's something about, you get a nice little white tail doe and I've brought home a ton of them over the, from all over Indiana, Illinois, things like that. And it's, that's some of the best eating venison, uh, for the deer family. Personally, have elk, you tried, have you tried sick of deer? Yes, I have quite a bit. And, um, you know, it's good. Uh, you talk about Sika or Sitka? Sika, you the have ones Sika. we here, have here. Yeah, on you have Sika. Sure. You know, I've eaten it over in France where they originated okay. and, um, but I have not, I was wanted to go up there and are you hunting on Assateague? Is that right? Or Chincoteague? Uh, yeah, was in that, that area. Island? Yep. Yep. There's areas, there's pockets of them. Yep. Well, I would love to come back and hunt, hint, 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 since I've never hunted them in the yeah. States. I, and I'm where you, I hunted it's them. A, it's uh, a blast. It's, it's yeah, awesome, I've never eaten, I've eaten them, but not, I haven't hunted them here in the States. But no, that's They're some elusive critters. They are elusive. Yeah. Because they well, live in always... the swamps and you're hunting in a swamp. You're wearing hip waders. Oh. Yeah, they're, they're hiding pretty good. I know that in France, um, I never shot one. Oh, actually, no, I shot two roe deer uh, one year, and um, and they're small. And I also got photos of a breeding. They're very, very small deer, and uh, they're but they it's excellent. But the Sika, I've, I've eaten them on. Um, my friend Xavier Pejna, his brother had a castle lands back in the. He's passed away many years back now, but. Um, my first trip over to France back in 96, I, we stayed on his castle lands in a farmhouse and, and he had some huge, uh, Sika deer. I mean, I've never seen anything that big here in the States and they have a, you know, they, they would have people come in and hunt them for money. And I was after Russian boars and I took three on that trip, which was a fabulous time. But no, I, I, I think Sika is really good eating. Now Sitka, everybody says that the ones in Alaska, that's the, some of the finest eating venison. Yeah, it's good, but I don't. I still would put a white-tailed doe on top of that. <laughs> That's my personal yep. opinion. Mm -hmm. But it's good. Oh yeah. So what what are you hunting with these days? What what's your equipment? I'm hunting with a left-handed 1980s bear takedown. Hmm. And but I've got custom limbs on it made by a company called RER. Uh, yeah, no longer is in business. I, you know, I yeah. found them online. I got them, but they are exceptional. My setup's 48 pounds. Um, the bow is camo painted. To, I replicated the camo pattern that Fred Bear sold. In a, actually, it was a $15 extra option if you wanted your bow camo <laughs> for bear archery. Hmm. And um, so the bow looks like a factory camo bear bow from 1986. Wow. Everything right down to the decals and everything. It's just, it's just one of them things. What's the weight? 48 pounds, fast flight. Um, it's just what I like shooting. Uh, I like a lot of fast. I like a lot of thud. I don't like to hear that. I don't like that string vibration you get from B50. Mm -hmm. And so I just like that. Just dunk, 
and that's it. And I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm deadly out to 15, but beyond that, it's 50, 50. I'm not that good <laughs> of a, a shooter. You know, I'm watching all these videos. I'm seeing all these younger guys, three fingers under strain walking. All this stuff is nothing new. Okay. No. Target archers did it back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. String walked, all that. It's just that they're using different terms now for old techniques. Um, but, you know, there's some crazy shooters out there. I mean, I watch these videos, guys like Joel Turner, and I'm like, oh, my God, they're amazing shots. Yeah. And it's like I, I, I envy these guys because I, every, I shoot every day. And some days, man, I, you can't, I'm on fire. And then there's other days like, man, I'm just better hang it up for today. You know, it's just inconsistency. Well, they've turned it into a science, uh, and, and Jason Westbrock is absolutely oh my fabulous. god! Yeah, I read it. I read his stuff all the time, and it's it's incredible. Yeah, he's but he. I've watched him shoot. Um, if I'm correct, I believe he shot a hundred dollar bill at about a hundred and fifty yards at one of the early Compton. Somebody had a hundred dollar bill folded up and on this great big bear. I think that's what it was. It was a. It was, and there's all these dollar bills, and if you hit one. You know, you got to keep the bills, and I believe he knew where the hundred dollar bill was, and and he he's a string walker or you know gap shooter or whatever. And I tell yep, you what, yep. he can shoot, and he's still he's out there. He shoots a lot of good deer too. He's a, he's quite the hunter. But like I said, he's yep. got us. He he has it down to a science. I watched him shoot. Uh, they had a indoor, I don't know what type of uh, contest it was at the traditional Bohane Expo about three or four years ago, and he stomped everybody. I mean, it just. The guy's just got a wall, a wall of trophies and dead deer. But it's yeah. a science to a lot of these people. For me, it's like yeah. I'm a better hunter than I am a shot these days, and that's why I got to get closer. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's what I am. I, I gun hunt like I bow hunt. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever shot a deer over 75 yards. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I, I treat my gun hunting like I do bow hunting. I'm as stealthy as they come for as old as I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's just one of, you know, who's another, you know, who's another good shooter and hunter is Denny Sturgis. Oh yeah. Den- he's phenomenal. Yeah. He's quite the care. Well, you know, and I think Randy Cooling's a pretty damn good shot too. Yep. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and those two hunt together quite a bit. I know they did some Europe and Africa stuff together and, uh, yeah, Denny's a good shot and he's got, like I said, they've got a science down to it and they spend a lot of time. They work out, they spend, but it's, I'm, I don't know. As I get older, it's, I'm more, the experience is more important to me these days just to be out there and try and put my wits against an animal. I don't spend as much time onto it as I used to. Um, I guess that's just what happens, uh, as you yeah, get older. I don't run trail cameras that I've never run no. trail cameras. I don't believe in it. That's just me. I'm a skilled woodsman and that's how I kill my deer. I follow a sign. I do the scouting. I look at tracks. I look at patterns. Um, you know, when I get on the lease, the first thing I do is I do a deer study. You know, I start walking the woods and looking at sign and see what kind of the quality of the deer herd is, uh, size of the animals taken um, by the hunters that are already on the farm, get an idea what's going on there. I've got a situation now where I've been on this lease three years, and it's 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 starting to come together. I'm start, starting to consistently kill deer on this property and good deer. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that I've been on for the last 20 years was awesome. I mean, 20 years ago, this thing was on fire. I mean, my God. Bucks everywhere, great sign everywhere. It was a it was a rut haven, and now you know due to I guess you know land development, um, farmer not practicing QDM stuff like that. We're starting to see less and less deer, and we had some you know they're shooting deer on off the properties. We, we know there's 
we know the farmer's shooting a heck ton of them, so he's do, he's probably putting a dent in the herd. Yeah, um, just not seeing the quality. I mean, the last time I killed a big buck there was 2017, and he was a he was a monster. Not a monster per se, but body wise, he was a monster. You know, he's over 213 pounds, and that's dressed. And when we aged the deer, he was eight and a half, according to the biologist. Hmm. And he was downhill. He was punctured in one eye, big hole in the side of his neck. He was still scrapping at that age. Yeah, you, know, you know, it's really a shame that uh, you, you talk about your woodsmanship. It's That's kind of a lost art these days. Most people are, you know, they just want to go out and kill things. And I understand that bloodlust is something you know, that's out there with all of us in the beginning. But um, yeah. I'm, for me, it's I'm just, I'm probably like you anymore, that I am more interested in nature and being out there and just because I don't know how much longer I'm gonna be able to climb these mountains for elk. You know, it's yeah, I'm 63, and I'm sure I'm sure I can get at least another 15, 20 good years in. But you yeah. know, there's gonna be that sweet day when I won't be able to do that. And so I kind of I take it all in. I I said I'll write. Mm-hmm. And I'll just spend the whole day in the woods and you know watching animals. And it just, I just I think that it, those things they're fleeting. You know, when you're young, we were bulletproof, and you know, old age was so far down the road. And then as you start getting older, realize. Dude, it's like it was been a it's been a full life, but it does come to an end. Everything dies, and yeah. so as you get there, you start realizing like this goat hunt that I went on this last year. Um, didn't get one. Had a hell of a good time. Went up three times trying to find a Billy. Saw five nannies, and that was about it. But how many more years am I going to be able to hunt at ninety four hundred feet when I'm coming up from four thousand feet and backpacking up for five six days at a time? Who yeah, knows? That's crazy. So, you know, those those are very precious times right now. So the memories I have from this last fall, although I didn't, you know, I never never dropped a string. I did catch some beautiful wild trout up in these alpine lakes over 9,000 feet. But those memories and those photos are what I'm going to have towards the end. And I think that uh, as you get older, it's that becomes more important than having to go out and kill something. Yes, I want to eat, you know, eat game. And I've got tons of it in, the, in all four freezers, but it's not that important. I mean... It's not the it's not the number one thing for me. Just being out there, and I think you feel the same way. You do that even on your woodlots, and you know what? Yeah, my uh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. My my hunting partner and best friend John, uh, he's seventy. He's also written for Traditional Bowhunter Magazine in the past as well. What's his last uh, name? John Hutter. Hutter. H u t t e r. Yep. And um, he's seventy now. I mean, last year was the first year we hunted together where I didn't see him use his climber. He's actually using a ladder stand. Um, yeah, yeah. He he says he's feeling it. He's starting to feel it. He's still yeah. this guy. He's, he's only about five foot ten, if that. About one hundred fifty pounds, soaking wet. A couple of years ago, this guy he could physically hug a tree and climb it like it was nothing. Mm. Now, not so much. He, he says, yeah. He says he just does not feel the strength anymore. He's now experiencing joint issues, just like. And I was like, I, I'm experiencing them at fifty five, and he's seventy. When I was 55, that's when I started with joint issues. And, uh, but you know, like you said, things happen. It's like life cycle. You know, when you, when you touch base me earlier, I just got back. I just climbed, uh, you know, 3,000, 3,500 feet up in the mountains here. And I took off for three hours and put on, I think, four and a half miles going straight up and down. I think my little thing said I went 62 stories or something like that. But it's, you know, and I'm hiking. I'm kept, I kept looking up. I said, well, maybe I shouldn't go that far. I said, no. So I ended up making the big loop. 
and I could feel it, but I, you know, I feel good coming back. Coming down is a little bit hard on the knees, um, you know, after all these years, but I can still do it. And I love getting out and I shot some images. I'll shoot those over to you. I saw some interesting rock formations today, but you know, I still got to get out. And it's like to say, it's, it, I just want to keep moving. And that's why I surf uh, when I can is this just to stay active. And even when I go to the grocery store, I park way out and I like to walk and everybody has to fight to get as close as possible. And they're all obese. I'm good thinking, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to walk as long as I can. Yeah. And, oh yeah. Uh, I'm, but, I'm an insurance adjuster. I, I, I go to body shops. Well, not now I'm, I'm living, I'm working out of the dining room, but, but when things were normal or when they're going to be normal, it's going to be normal. I, I go to a body shop. Yeah. And I park my vehicle far and away from the shop and I walk in and walk around. the So I do a lot of walking and that's mm -hmm. what keeps my weight at a manageable level. Uh, of course yeah. I could lose another 10, 20 pounds, you know, but, but I like beer, you know, so, um, <laughs> it's a trick. I just, I just opened my first one. So well, hey, you um, know what, you're, you're going to be heading over one. to your favorite little watering hole here shortly, aren't you? Mm -hmm. No, I'm, right. I'm in no hurry right now. It's still, it's not even five o'clock here yet. And uh, I still got to take the dog for a walk. She's uh, we got a thunderstorm going here and she's not oh. going anywhere as long as that storm is around. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. She doesn't whimper or anything like that, but she just does not like thunder. She just lays on the bed and stares at me. Gives me the, you know, the hairy eyeball, I call it. <laughs> uh, Rich, it's been a good, this has been a good hour spent with you, and I really appreciate you taking time to uh, to talk with me today. And I miss seeing you. I hope to see you again here shortly. Uh, any final comments yep. you'd like to to like to make before we, uh, you head to the pub? I'm going to go jump in the pool for a few hours. It's about 95 Yeah, sounds like, sounds like a plan. Well, I just want to thank you so much for the for the opportunity and privilege. I mean, I'm, I'm blessed to know you and and um, to, I'm blessed to say that you're you're a friend. And Traditional Bowhunter Magazine has been part of my life for, for since day one. And uh, I've got every single issue, doubles and triples of it. And I plan on spending part of my retirement rereading everything. Um, but if anybody ever you know wants to get in touch with me, you know about their bow, if they want you know help in doing it themselves, that's what my website's for. Um, if you What's hit me website? up on Facebook, look, it's a uh, droptinetraditions.com um, just go to the home page and so yeah. people want any kind of uh, bow work done and they can find you and if they have and if any of you listeners uh, you can't get a hold of him just contact me give me a buzz drop me an email or or, uh, or call me and I yeah. will hook you up with Rich I got a page on Facebook too it's called Drop Time Traditions slash Rich Lopez so I'm not hard Perfect. to find really I mean if the cops <laughs> can find me you guys can find me there you go. Well, listen, brother, I love you, and I really appreciate the time you spent with us today. And uh, go enjoy your first beer in your pub for the. I, I'm 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 going to be with you vicariously. I live out in the desert. I'm going to stay out here. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. All right, say hi to Robin. I will, brother. You take care. Oh, right, you too. And thanks Thank a you. lot. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. hope you enjoyed this campfire chat podcast thanks for joining us please subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss the next one and visit our website www.tradbow.com for great articles tips and lots more of traditional bow hunter magazine